So we're going to continue in the larger catechism. Finish off question 15 today. We left off last week and then cover question 16. Uh, first, let's open with prayer. Our great and glorious God, our Father in heaven, you who dwell in inapproachable light, glory and splendor, we come to you this morning to pray that your spirit would be among us, uh, teaching us from your word, that you would uh, glory in these doctrines that we hold dear, the doctrine of creation, and we pray that you'd be strengthened more and more uh, from grace to grace and from faith to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ uh, by this teaching. We pray all this in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll do our review, uh, starting with question 11. Say these together. Question 11, how doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, describing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. Question 12, what are the decrees of God? God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath, for his own glory, unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. Question 13. What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? God, by an eternal and immutable decree, out of his mere love, for the praise of his glorious grace, to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof. And also, according to his sovereign power, and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin inflicted to the praise of his glory of justice. Question 14. How doth God execute his decrees? God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will. And turning to question 15, you can look on today's outline for that one. Say that one together. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning, by the word of his power, make of nothing the world and all things therein, for himself, within the space of six days, and all very good. All right. So we just read it, but children, help me out here. Who created the world? God, right, the one true triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, created everything that we see in Genesis 1 from nothing by the word of his power. Okay, how long did this take? How long did God take? Billions of years. <laughs> Billions of years. We got another answer here? <laughs> Six days, that's right. We read it last week in Genesis 1. Days one through six. Now, what are we saying here? Are our Bibles incompatible with modern science? No. Let's remember that much of modern science, roughly from the days of the Enlightenment on, has been aimed at with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, describes as suppressing the truth. So let's turn there first. Romans 1, 18 to 20. 
can call these out as we've done. Anybody have Romans 1, 18 through 20? I got it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Psalm 19.1, maybe you can say this one with me. The heavens declare, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Yet God tells us in the scriptures, such as Romans 1, that man naturally hates God and actively seeks to suppress the truth of God in varying degrees. This, again, is what we see with much of modern science. Darwin himself, in crafting the theory of evolution, was attempting to suppress, to shove down right, the truth of God so much that he was intending to erase God of his ideas. We would say, on the other hand, evolution is not compatible with the Bible. What did God keep saying about his creation after each day? Good. Good. And God saw that it was good. So one of the many problems of evolution, then, even with what we might hear touted as theistic evolution, is that there would have been death before the fall with all these billions or millions of years. So we hear it spelled out in different ways. But if we try to make the days of Genesis into ages or fit billions of years in there with a gap theory, then we would be saying by implication that there would be there would have been death and decay before we get to Adam and Eve. But because we believe that God made all things very good, we believe that death in all the creation was a result of sin. Right? Genesis 3.17. Someone can turn there. And then Romans 8.22. See the results of sin. Genesis 3.17. You know how that one? Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree for which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and totally you shall eat of it, and all the days of your life. Thank you. Cursed is the ground. The ground was cursed after the fall. We have Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation has been running together in the pain of childbirth until now. The whole creation groaning because of sin, because of the fall. If this groaning, this curse of the ground, the introduction of death began at the fall of Adam and Eve, and they were created on day six, then it's impossible to fit billions of years of death and decay into the creation story. This is just one evidence that evolution is false. Let's examine some other scriptural support for the idea that we have six literal days in Genesis 1. How about Exodus 20, verses 9 through 11? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. You, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. See the purpose clause there. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth. Our God structures our literal seven-day week. Six days of work, one day of rest and worship on the basis of his own work and creation. Six literal days of work and a glorious seventh day of rest and enjoyment in all that he had made. We could also consider the structure of the Hebrew text in Genesis 1. It is narrative. Narrative text. Uh, just thinking in the way, just thinking of the way in which uh, this text was given by Moses to the people of Israel would be enough to see that it's a narrative text. In the beginning, God but we also see it evidenced by the Hebrew term, the Vav consecutive. Just learned about this. That was exciting. Uh, the simple way to see this in English is in the phrases, and God said, and God saw, and God made. That's a narrative uh, structure. It occurs 55 times in Genesis 1. We see it all throughout other narrative portions of Scripture, right? And the Lord said, and David did. Then Saul did. It's a, it's a narrative structure. It's not a poetic structure. <clears throat> so let's turn to that uh, GPTS faculty statement. I had to wear my Greenville tie today. I also commend an uh, OPC article that Elder Lovelady had posted uh, by Kenneth Gentry on creation. He lays out some excellent points defending six-day creationism, addressing objections. So if you need that one, ask Elder Lovelady. Uh, but Greenville Seminary recognizes how important this topic is and we won't read the whole thing. There's some highlights here uh, from that second paragraph. We, the faculty of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, wish to acknowledge publicly our view on creation so that the churches and individuals supporting the seminary may know what to expect from classroom instruction and faculty writing. And going down to the third bullet point, we believe that an accurate study of Old Testament texts does not support the gap theory, the framework hypothesis, the analogical theory, or the day-age view. Indeed, we find the Old Testament creation texts to be interpreted as normal days, and no passage demands that Genesis 1 and 2 be re-engineered to yield other interpretations. The long history of rabbinical commentary the very dating of time by the Hebrew calendar and Orthodox Jewish thought so understands these texts to embrace only days of ordinary length. Flip to the back. Second bullet point there. The Westminster Assembly divines either felt no need to comment on the length of days, so clearly was it established or if they commented, they uniformly, either explicitly or implicitly, adopted the 24-hour view. With 60 to 80 divines normally attending sessions, at least 20 of the divines who did comment in their published writings indicated that they only understood the creation to be 24-hour days or ordinary days, and none have been found who espoused a contrary view. 
Specifically, there were no divines who wrote advocating a day-age view or framework view. We continue to esteem them not only as confessional authors, but also as faithful exegetes. We deny that certain scientific theories are so certain as to compel us to reinterpret scripture on this matter. And it's really a backwards way of thinking, right? To, to say, oh, well, science says this, so let me fit that into the scripture. We do opposite. We take what the scripture says and interpret everything else. Uh, two bullet points down. By the mid-19th century, certain leading Presbyterians, sadly, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, and later Shedd and Warfield began to conform their exegesis to the ascendant science of the day. We believe that this was a strategic and hermeneutical mistake, as well as a departure from the meaning of the terms in the Westminster Standards. Leading Southern Presbyterians, such as Thornwell, Dabney, and Girardeau, however, simultaneously resisted efforts to broaden the church on this point, as is documented in the Woodrow trial and decisions. And the last paragraph here, we admit that some Christians have been too lax on this subject and others have been too narrow. Hence, we hope to enunciate in this statement a moderate, historic, and biblical position. Even should other fine men differ with us on this subject, we hereby announce our intent to remain faithful to the teaching of the Westminster Standards and other Reformed Confessions of Faith on this subject. So, the teaching of Scripture and our confession is that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing by the word of his power within the space of six days and all very good. Again, uh, those articles that we mentioned, there's lots of resources out there that deal with different objections, but that's a summary view of six days, six days only. So let's move to question 16. And we can read it together. How did God create angels? God created, God created all the angels, spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute his commandments and to praise his name, yet subject to change. Turn to Colossians 1.16. We read this last week. It's very well here. Again. Anybody have Colossians 116? <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Provided right. all things were created in heaven visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. All things. Our infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God created all things. And that includes the angelic beings. Nothing in all creation is independent from God. Nothing is independent from God. Remembering this will keep us from giving too much credit to angels. None of them, not even Satan, are equal with God in any way. They are created beings. Angels are spirits. See this in Psalm 104, verse 4. Anybody have that? Psalm 104, 4, and then we're going to go to Jude Go for it. Very good. Thank you. Some translations say winds. King James, New King James captures spirits. Angels are immortal. We don't see angels subject to death in Scripture. 
But rather we see texts such as Jude 6. Anybody have Jude 6? And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. No mention of death. No mention of angels suffering death, but rather immortal and eternal punishment. Angels were created holy. We've already said just as God created man upright, so angels were created and were like the rest of creation, very good. Very good. Angels excel in knowledge. Time and again in Scripture we see angels know of and warn of coming events. Right? The angels in Genesis 19 were sent to warn Lot to flee Sodom. Or we can think of the angels sent to Zechariah, Mary, Joseph. Very familiar stories. And they were declaring what were going to happen. What was going to happen. Angels excel in knowledge. Angels are mighty in power. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Thank you. And to give you what trouble rests with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire to vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, good. So here we see a picture of angels having what? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Might, strength, power. We could consider other texts, um, the angels helping Israel in battle. Angels are mighty. What is the purpose of angels? Why did God make them, though? We could look back to Colossians 1.16 and be reminded that God ultimately made all things for His glory Himself, right? All things exist for Him. And our catechism question next goes into what God purposes angels to do. Read it again. God created all the angels' spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute. This is what they're doing. To execute his commandments and to praise his name. We're actually going to start with praising his name. Angels were created to <coughs> praise God's name. And we have Revelation 5, 11, and 12. Go for it. Yep. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Right. What do we see angels doing here? Praising. Praising God. Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. Right. Do his will. Do his word. Do his will. Some translations says pleasure. They're doing God's pleasure. They're carrying out God's purposes. Angels do God's bidding. Even fallen angels. Even Satan. He does according to God's plan. Right, children? 
Can angels or Satan do anything that is not part of God's plan? Can they? No. Good. No. Angels are created to praise God's name, to execute his commands and decrees. Again, we looked at this already in question 12. What are the decrees of God? So it's a good time to remember where we've been and how the links and the chain just keep going in the catechism. God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever, whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. All things that come to pass, even regarding angels, are unchangeably foreordained by our glorious God. And yet, the last phrase of Large Catechism 16 teaches us that angels were created subject to change. All foreordained, but they were subject to change. In other words, they could fall from glory. Not outside of God's foreordination, but angels could indeed fall from glory. As we looked at in Jude 6, 2 Peter 2, 4, sort of a parallel passage here. You could read that one. 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And it goes on. Angels sinned, angels fell, but all part of God's plan. And we're going to look more at angels in, I believe, question 18. So really we're just looking at how God created them, staying within, within the bounds of this question. But since we've been, since we've been two weeks considering creation, um, that would be a good time to examine the scriptures generally, some grand statements regarding creation. We looked at a couple of these last week. So we're on the back side of the outline now. And just a whole lot of scripture. So we're going to start at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse 26. And you can see the next ones there. I want to line them up. Set them up, knock them down here. Somebody have Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created thee. He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of Might, power, God having those things. Isaiah 42, 5. Also. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, 
He established it, but he not created it in He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no other. He is God, and there is no other. He is the one who created all. Jeremiah 10. I got that. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus he shall say to them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom, and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the wind. He brings the wind out of its treasure. Attributes of God here that we've covered in previous questions. Again, power, wisdom, understanding. This is how God created. And it's amazing to think about all that he directs in the creation. Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I whom, by my great power and my outstretched arm, have made the earth, with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I gave it to whomever it seemed right. Jeremiah 32, 17. I got it. Yeah. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And last one for this section, Amos 5, 8. God, who has washed us white as snow by the blood of the Lamb, by the blood of Christ. He's the almighty creator of everything. So what's the point? Why, why study creation? Why think about larger catechism 15, 16? Well, let's not forget that all theology, as with all theology, we are meant to be stirred to doxology, to praise, Hopefully we cannot but read such passages of Scripture and be moved to praise. Right. Let's turn to the Psalms and see how pondering creation leads to praise. Familiar one, Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 104, verse 24. You know, it's a lot of page turning today. Go for it. Thinking about creation could lead to praise. Lead the praise. Revelation 4 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So, one reason that he is worthy, why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Let's also consider how the scriptures teach us to have confidence in prayer because of creation, because of God's power in creation. Um, 
we could say this one together probably. Psalm 121, 1 and 2. I lift my eyes up to the hills. And where does my help come from? Thank you. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Right. God's creative power gives the psalmist confidence in a prayer. 2 Kings 19, verse 15. Remember the context. Hezekiah is afraid. He's afraid, and yet he puts his prayers, he lifts his eyes to the hills, and he addresses this prayer to God. And see how he speaks. Yes, verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. See how he remembers God's creative power. No matter what's going on around him, he knows God is the one who holds all things together. He's the one who made everything. Nehemiah 9.6 Nehemiah 9.6 He made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, all their hosts, everything in creation. And he preserves it all. If he preserves everything, he will preserve his people. Right? So a little repetitive, but see how saints of old have prayed this way. We can pray this way. Let's let's pray like the apostles in Acts twenty Acts four, verse twenty four. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They continued. It's a great way to pray. Or we can even use this in our evangelism and declaring to the lost, such as in Acts 14, verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Yes, let's declare to the lost their sin, the fact that we are sinners with them, the fact that we have a great Savior in Jesus Christ, so let's include God's creative power. He's the God who made everything. He's the God who made them. In Revelation 14, verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And the picture in Revelation is, of course, people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping God and saying things like this. The one who made heaven and earth and everything in them. Some practical thoughts to think about regarding creation. Um, great hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder at How awesome our God is in his creative power. Any questions? Comments?
It's just a logical implication. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what the framework people say okay. in regards to that argument, um, but just putting the pieces together. It's, uh, okay. You want to know what the framework people say? <laughs> yeah. Well, the question. Right, with which uh, Gentry covers in his uh, rebuttals uh, in the article on OPC.org. Check some of that out. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of back and forth. Uh, just hit the main points here um, and why you take literal six-day view. It just makes the most sense. There's also uh, one of the main disruptions of understanding the third day. And so the framework people say that that makes a quasi-contradiction. And we don't have to get into details. We'll talk details. Talk to me after the service. But what I like to ask the framework guys, and it's important to know that in May Park churches, our denomination, PCA, you can have a framework view. It just so happens that the majority of men in our church have the correct view. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the, what I find very interesting is that you know, to get historical theologians, if you've got guys spanning hundreds of years and they all have the same view for 1,900 years, Probably a right view. If if, if uh, Augustine, Calvin, uh, various reformers, Westminster divines, going all the way up into the 19th and 20th centuries, agree, it's probably a, not that you a unanimous view amongst theologians uh, validates scripture, but it, it gives us a good a, a good point of view. I think. And so it's important to know framework view didn't become popular until the 20th century. So let's not dip our toes in the weirdo Mormon-esque is that a new view type thing is my advice. Um, it is six days. It is 24-hour days. It's historical. It's right. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Right? Why, why did these changes come about? Because we could say, well, men for 1,500 years or whatever it was believed the world was flat. Well, that's an observational thing that, you, that we can now see. Right? The world is round. Um, that's, a, that's a scientific discovery versus a theory that was intended to erase God. I mean, Darwin was very upfront about it. He, he hated God, just like we read from Romans 1. And so, 1900 years of men believing the same thing, and now we're going to adjust our view because of people who are anti-God. That's different than a scientific discovery. Um, no one's discovered evolution. Yes. It was brought up very briefly, but I have heard it many times about the apparent contradiction between chapters 1 and 2. What is a good, concise rebuttal when you hear that out of the law? It gets really, really detailed. They want to argue the Hebrews. They want to argue that what the meaning of the third day is. 
most uh, Ken Jeffries article in my Brittany.
So the, with the dawn of the Enlightenment, right, these other views started coming in with the northern guys, Hodge and such. We would say that. Yeah. That seems to be in line with, okay, there's this influence. Now we're going to reinterpret Thank you all. Close in prayer. Our great God in heaven, you who did make the earth and sea and all that is in them, all the universe, Lord, stretched out the heavens, calls out the stars. You control everything, Lord. All things are under your feet. We are glad. We are glad to serve such a God as you. Thank you that we ask the question, who is man? Who are we that you are mindful of us, the sovereign creator of all things? Mindful of us. We are less than the dust on the scales. And yet you care for us, Lord, and you sent your son to call us to yourself. We are now indwelt with your spirit. We pray that we would be stirred up by this study to worship you in our upcoming service and spend this Lord's Day uh, worshiping you all the day. We thank you for being our creator, for being the strong creator of all things. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.